This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. It is October and thus autumn is in full swing. It also means it's Russell Kirk Month. Dr. Kirk is, of course, the father of American post-war conservatism, my former boss, and the author of an essay called Cultural Debris, from which this podcast derives its title. Dr. Kirk's birthday is on October 19th, and Halloween was his favorite holiday, so in October we pay particular attention to all things Kirkian, from his historical and political writings to his award-winning ghostly tales. And do also make your plans for October 19th, which is Kirk Night, the night of his birth. If possible, find some fellow Kirkians with whom to celebrate, read a Kirk ghostly tale, have a rich dessert, and raise a toast. I also want to make mention that this October marks the two-year mark for cultural debris. I appreciate all the guests who have graciously spent time talking with me, as well as all of you listening. I am delighted that you are interested in my conversations, and I hope for many more episodes and years to come. I should be spending Kirk Knight on a jet plane to Genoa, Italy, where the first ever cultural debris excursions will occur. Two groups of six adventurers will join my friend Tom Ruby and me, for great food, drink, exploration, and discussion. It promises to be a spectacular time. I will be reporting back to you about the trip. And, if all goes as expected, plans are afoot for more excursions in 2023. And I hope you might join us. Our poem is from the Bard himself. Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon these boughs which shake against the cold. Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away. Death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire That on the ashes of his youth doth lie As the deathbed whereon it must expire Consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, To love that which thou must leave ere long. In keeping with Russell Kirk Month, our guest is Luke Sheehan of Duquesne University and the newly appointed editor of the University Bookman, a book review journal founded by Russell Kirk and edited by him until his death. Dr. Sheehan steps into the role left vacant by the passing of the great Gerald Rossello, someone we all greatly miss. Dr. Sheehan and I discuss his plans for the bookman, 
the debate between Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley on academic freedom, and the fundamental need for associations and the freedom of association, as outlined by Robert Nisbet. All that and more as I talk with Professor Luke Sheehan. Sheehan, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. You're at Duquesne University. Uh, tell me a little bit about Duquesne. Yeah, so Duquesne is a uh, it's a university. It's right uh, right next to downtown Pittsburgh, and uh, it's a great campus that's described as a a park in the middle of the city. And it's really it's really like that. Just a beautiful campus. Um, a great uh, liberal arts focus, but also a professional focus. So we have a number of professional schools there, nursing, public health, law, business, uh, as well as a strong liberal arts college. So it's just a, a real great place to be. You got a really good balance between uh, research and teaching. It was founded in the late 19th century by the Spiritan uh, order of uh, uh, of uh, religious order, um, and uh, almost no one knows uh, knows who the Spiritans are. They don't have a very strong <laughs> American presence, uh, but uh, Duquesne is one of the uh, the major kind of footholds that that order has in the United States. Oh, very interesting. So, uh, how long have you been there? Uh, I will be, be starting my fourth year. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's long enough to uh, to kind of kind of know your way around. Although I guess it's um, it's been a little interrupted as everyone's life has been with the whole uh, whole COVID thing. I guess that your second year, I guess, was probably the the COVID year, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So my uh, yeah, the COVID uh, lockdown started my second semester, and uh, you know, kind of lost my second year, and even my uh, third year was a little, you know little rocky there for a while. So uh, especially that my family got COVID that, uh, that fall. So I was off campus for, you know, a number of uh, weeks and it was uh, yeah quite harrowing. So unfortunately I haven't actually spent as much time on the wonderful Duquesne campus as I would like. Well, I hope that changes for you. It sounds like a, a pleasant place to be. No, it so. is. Well, uh, congratulations uh, are in order that you have been recently named the new editor of the University Bookman. So uh, Thank tell you. us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I've been named the uh, the next editor of the University Bookman, which is uh, it's quite an honor um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is that there haven't been very many editors of the University Bookman. It was founded in 1960 by Russell Kirk. Um, and it was edited for decades by Russell Kirk and his wife, Annette. Uh, and it was taken over uh, then by uh, Jeff Nelson uh, for a number of years, and he, uh, Jeff Nelson's a uh, major figure in, in uh, kind of the, uh, the uh, uh, conservative institutions. So he was high up at ISI for, uh, gosh, years and years. He, um, uh, Russell Kirk described him as a, a man of unusual talents or something like that, and that, that's certainly <laughs> true. Uh, he's very. Uh, I, think, I think that's probably probably well said. Yes, a very skilled administrator, uh, skilled, uh, very skilled in personal skills, um, and very sharp. Uh, he is kind of one of those guys who could. Uh, he could have been a uh, leading intellectual light of the conservative movement, a leading uh, administrative light. Uh, he kind of can do it all. Um, so he's been a major figure for um, decades in, among traditionalist uh, conservative uh, figures. And he just recently just moved back to Macosta to uh, take over the uh, Russell Kirk Center there. 
Um, so he, he edited for a number of years and then, uh, Gerald Rossello, uh, edited for, uh, the last, uh, 15 years or so. Um, and he passed away last year. Um, and then, uh, uh, the stars aligned and I was appointed the, the next editor. Well, certainly congratulations. And, and of course we do want to acknowledge the great, uh, great work and, and also the great loss of Gerald Rossello, who oh, was yeah. a, a, a wonderful guy and, um, and, an online e-friend of mine for many years, although uh, I don't think uh, he and I ever actually met in person, but uh, we knew each other through, uh, you know, digital means for uh, for many years, and he was always encouraging and kind, and I know he was to many people. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's quite uh, moving and humbling the uh, the support that had come through uh, uh, for Gerald. I I never met him either. We just had communicated via email and. Uh, he was really, uh, you know, if the uh, the signs of of whose friends and acquaintances are uh, are any sign. He was really an extraordinary man, and it was a, a huge loss. Uh, uh, and those are those are big shoes to fill. So how did uh, how did your association with University Bookman begin? So uh, I um, have been involved in the, I guess uh, you might call it traditional conservatism for uh, for some time. You know, some time I was involved with ISI as an undergraduate, and um, always knew a number of people over there. Had visited the Russell Kirk Center as a Weaver Fellow when I was in graduate school. Uh, of course, I've been uh, heavily influenced, as have you and uh, many others, by Russell Kirk's books. Um, and you know, Annette uh, Kirk has has just been a wonderful uh, presence in my life uh, at various times. Uh, Jeff's been around and been a wonderful presence in my life. Um, and I I read the University Bookman for a number of years, and I contributed. Uh, uh, I guess that would be uh, last year, or the year before. Actually, was the first time I had gotten uh, started to write for it uh, at Gerald's request. Um, so my uh, I kind of been present with it uh, as a as a reader and a writer um, uh, most recently, and uh, I'm re- really as again <laughs> humbled to be a, a part of it, taking the helm. Well, of course, the University Bookman goes back many decades. There was um, um, a time when uh, when every subscriber to National Review also received a subscription to University Bookman. So it was that's right. Um, it was a uh, had an extraordinarily large uh, circulation. In fact, the first time I ever saw uh, University Bookman or was aware of it is when I subscribed many years ago to National Review and uh, started receiving this this little quarterly in the mail, and I uh, I wasn't even sure what it was um, at first. So it, uh, but it 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 has had a lot of influence for a long time, and uh, I'm I am glad to see it. Uh, to see it have a, a, a future and, uh, and seems to be in good hands. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I, I say that as a, as a former assistant editor of the university, university bookman from oh, 30 odd years ago or so, but, uh, it's, it's good to, um, good to know that, that, uh, good things lie ahead. What, what kind of is your, is your vision going forward for the bookman? So uh, my vision going forward in true conservative fashion is to uh, keep doing what the University Bookman has been doing. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, my own uh, 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 influence will, will over the years come to uh, come to uh, affect it. Um, but 
the University Bookman has always been about uh, reviewing books that build culture, and I'd really like to uh, to stay with that and to uh, stick with it. Um, Gerald, of course, did a great job uh, keeping with that mission, um, and not just through uh, well publishing reviews that of books that build culture, of course, but also uh, in the way he was able to interact with the writers, especially young writers, um, in a way that was uh, itself uh, culture building. And how Gerald actually conducted himself, um, and I'd like to uh, to really kind of latch onto that. Uh, when there's ever there's a a leadership uh, change, uh, one of the big dangers is that whatever was gained or accomplished in the previous regime is lost. Uh, I, I'm a Denver Broncos fan, and a few years back we had a coaching change, and uh, the previous coach had won the Super Bowl, and they brought in a new coach, and the first thing he did was cleaned out, <laughs> cleaned out the staff, uh, and uh, they hadn't been back to the playoffs since. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, I hope that guy knows what he's doing. Um, <laughs> it seems like you know when you got something that works, uh, you know, do not change it, or only make sure that whatever it is you change, you know, as, as Burke says, you know, when you change something, you better be pretty sure it's an improvement and not a loss. Uh, and so, uh, kind of first things first is I want to keep going and keep doing what, what Gerald had been doing. Well, I know that, uh, Gerald had built, uh, you know, kind of a, I guess a, a fairly substantial community of, of, um, like-minded people around, uh, around the bookman. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of goodwill built up around the bookman. So, uh, it's, so you're you're starting from a good place, certainly. Yeah. I think I think Gerald left it uh, left it in uh, in good shape. Oh yes, that's uh, that's certainly my impression. Is it's it's been left in great shape and kind of uh, every way you can say that. So the the sort of congratulations I was getting by by Gerald's friends and previous uh, previous contributors has been really encouraging and uh, and really humbling again uh, to be able to get that. And so uh, as I was telling you know, some of the contributors, you know would say, you know, as, as editor, I'm not sure where you're going to take this, but, you know, I'd be willing to continue to contribute, but I understand if you're, you're going in a different direction. And what I wrote back to them every time, as uh, what I told you is actually, I want to continue doing what uh, the great work Gerald was doing. So starting there, I'm sure I'll, I'll, you know, think my own, uh, my own, uh, quirks or, and, uh, um, interests will shape it as the years go by. But, uh, uh first things first, I really want to, uh, preserve the good culture that, uh, that the bookman already has. Well, I know that uh, I was looking at some of your some of your past writings, and one of the things that immediately jumped out uh, to me uh, because of my own uh, particular interests, um, per- particularly in, in I guess in years gone by. But uh, you wrote some about um, Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley and their different approaches and and critiques of one another on the issue of academic freedom and uh, wanted to wanted to explore that maybe a little bit with you i uh again years ago i did some um some writing on on buckley and kirk from kind of the same period and i think it's a it's a very interesting period of uh of conservative uh american conservative history but uh one that maybe a lot of people aren't that familiar with now i mean i think it's we're we're losing touch with it maybe in some ways but uh but but buckley's first big book of course was god man at yale which was yep. really a book that was uh and i guess an attack to some degree depending on your your perspective but an attack on the the idea of academic freedom or at least that's the way 
that many people saw it. What what was Buckley trying to accomplish with God and Man at Yale? Yeah, so uh, Buckley writes God and Man at Yale, and I think he's you know twenty five years old, so he's uh he's right out of Yale, and he uh, publishes this book that's critical, of course, of Yale, his alma mater, uh, and uh, uh, his his attack is that. Uh, Yale's claiming in the name of academic freedom uh, to uh, uh, it's protecting the uh, freedom of of its professors to publish uh, attacks on capitalism uh, and attacks on Western culture and all these sorts of things. Uh, but it's telling its uh, alumni who are making donations and it's telling the parents of its students who are paying tuition and making donations uh, that they are supporting capitalism, that they're supporting uh, American culture and Western culture, and they're not. Uh, and he says, well, they're, they're, they're not doing that. So there's kind of a fundamental problem is they're, they're lying to uh, their alumni and they're lying to the parents of their students. Uh, they're giving them a very different education than the one they're telling the students that they're getting. And then they're, uh, the second problem is what we're describing as academic freedom is uh, for Buckley, he saw that as, as a, is just a, the kind of a, a John Stuart Mill's arguments about free speech, um, which uh, Buckley did not find convincing, uh, applied to the academy. And Buckley said, no one actually believes in this view of academic freedom. So we say, well, everyone gets to express their views. They're all legitimate. Um, in the academic context, you need to have you know, scholarly rigor, but you can argue anything. Uh, and he says, well, that's, that's not true. Uh, we don't say you can argue anything about poetry. You can't argue anything about poetry. Uh, you can argue about good poetry, but we have standards of what we think is good poetry and what's acceptable. And sure, they might change over the decades or centuries, but uh, there there are clear limits of what you can do and what you can say. Uh, and that's true in all of the disciplines. So we're that that's not true. Um, and it's kind of tendentious because we're using it to defend... Um, frankly, bad ideas. So uh, uh, socialist ideas, say, in economics, that's one of his big targets. Now, these are very bad ideas, um, and I think we should impose limits, just like we do it across the disciplines, to keep out these bad ideas um, at Yale. Uh, so uh, he says, you know, he calls it, the subtitle of the book is The Superstitions of Academic Freedom. He says, we, we, we kind of pay lip service to it, and we have the superstition, but none of us actually believe it. Um, we're just uh, told that we're supposed to in order to justify uh, these certain presences in the on the faculty that he that Buckley saw as really problematic. You know, it, I remember when I first read God and Man at Yale. It, of course, this was many years after after Buckley wrote it, but it, it he makes he makes some valid points. I think. I mean, I think that there's there there are legitimate criticisms that he's levying against Yale that would be applicable to any number of institutions, of course, at the time then, and certainly now, uh, that, that this is really just being used as a cover. And he's basically saying this, this idea of the free exchange of ideas is, is really a myth. And, uh, you know, we, it seems like that's true, doesn't it? In a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, this is the the thing is there's there's a there's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, of course, there's limits to what is kind of uh, uh, acceptable within a discipline. What are the conversations that are actually happening in political science and economics and English and that sort of thing? Uh, so there are certain limits upon uh, uh, what uh, kind of what can be discussed uh, within it. So there, he's making a, a 
a, a decent point as far as that goes. I mean, one of his points is, hey, look, we, we, we already believe in limits, so let's not say we don't. I just want to narrow them um, to, uh, to the, uh, the, the mission of Yale. So Yale says it's here for Western culture and American culture, and it says it's here for capitalism. It tells its donors that to get donations. It tells parents that to get tuition dollars. They should just actually do it. Uh, and so he's, he's making a, a decent point in terms of uh, what we might uh, at some of the uh, pretensions we have about um, academic freedom. And of course, with you know free speech, there's there's always a uh, a uh, an Overton window that you have to deal with. It seems human beings can't operate without a, that Overton window. Um, and he's pointing out that we're lying when we say it's not there. Of course, it's there. Uh, and so he's you know he's making some decent points along those lines. Um, however, I think uh, Kirk provides some some pushback on what he has to say. Yeah, I think so. So Kirk comes out with uh, with his book called very, very succinctly, Academic Freedom, uh, dealing that, that was at least in partial response to Buckley. It was, I guess we would say it was part of a larger debate, but it, it's hard not to see it as, uh, as tied to that sort of an an interconservative uh, debate too about what the role of the university is supposed to be. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, Burke. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kirk. Uh, Freudian slip there. Kirk uh, uh, publishes Academic Freedom. Uh, it was uh, let's see, Buckley's book came out in uh, 1951, I think, and Kirk's came out, I think, in 1955. So, kind of in that uh, that uh, really uh, fertile period where. A uh, number of great uh, conservative books are published just within a handful of years. Uh, Nisbet, Kirk, Buckley, a uh, bunch of these uh, come out. Uh, Whitaker Chambers, right in this period. So Kirk's writing kind of right in that that period, um, and he comes out and you know much to I think everyone's surprise even today. You have the traditionalist conservative who comes out uh, critical of, uh, of Buckley, who's a little more of a uh, I guess you might call him a libertarian uh, in terms of his support for free market capitalism and that sort of thing, which uh, Kirk as a traditionalist was uh, kind of more reticent to really be stridently uh, uh, pro-capitalism and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so Kirk comes out critical of Buckley, uh, kind of weirdly from from a pro-academic freedom direction, and he's critical of various liberals uh, like Sidney Hook, who supported academic freedom but wanted to make exceptions, uh, for example, for communists. So uh, if it was discovered you're a communist, that would be um, a reason to break your tenure contract. Um, and Kirk comes out, you know, uh, kind of surprisingly, uh, critical of, uh, of both sides, uh, the conservatives who wanted to get rid of communist professors as well as liberals who wanted to get rid of communist professors. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a surprising uh, development. Um, and what Kirk has to say in the, that book, and it's a great little book, little book, if you can uh, find a copy on it. Uh, it's slim and kind of quick and to the point. Uh, he argues that uh, what, what the university is doing is it's not just a training ground for um, uh, parents to kind of get their children catechized in, uh, in political values that we associate with conservatism or with uh, 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 the Western world, you know, pro-capitalism. Uh, pro-individualism. That's what Buckley wanted. Uh, it, that's just not what the university is for. The university uh, can trace uh, its origins uh, institutionally, can trace them deep into the medieval period. As I think, as everybody knows, the first universities, as we understand them, are founded uh, in not in the modern period, which is uh, uh, what I think uh, a lot of people would think, but they're founded 
in the medieval period. And the reason for this is that a number of people during this period, which is highly religious, believed that uh, the God they believed in had made a world that was understandable, uh, that was governed by certain laws, and we could study it. And we could have a certain openness towards truth, a curiosity about God's world, and we could study it and uh, try to come to a certain understanding, um, a proper understanding of what it meant. Um, so it, there was uh, a certain amount of freedom that had to attach uh, to that vocation. So those called to be in the guild of the academy, the guild of the university, would have certain protections. So uh, basically, if you're in a profession, uh, you'd have certain guild prote uh, pr uh, protections for you to be able to carry out whatever your profession was, the duties of your profession. Well, for the uh, professor, the scholar and the teacher, uh, what there was a, basically a guild was what the university was uh, for scholars, and that meant certain protections, one of which was academic freedom, the ability to be able to uh, write and publish and kind of uh, question, as it were, um, uh, and interrogate, uh, to use a modern term, um, certain understandings with the goal of getting to a better understanding of the truth. Uh, so he calls, uh, he has this great term, he calls uh, uh, scholars guardians of the word. Word, capital W. So we're pursuing the truth. Um, of course, that's uh, drawn from scripture. We're pursuing the truth um, in our various disciplines, uh, using methods appropriate to our disciplines. We're trying to get to a better understanding of the world uh, that God has created and the truths found therein. And so he says, this is really what the university is. And, he, and that goes, and, and that's, of course, the, the modern institutional university has its roots in that understanding of what the scholar's vocation is. But of course, it goes even further back. We can trace it back kind of uh, in terms of its fundamental essence to Plato's Academy. Um, it's about uh, the, the debates that take place between Socrates and his interlocutors, where you have to be able to ask some questions, maybe even un uncomfortable questions, to try to uncover uh, what the truth is. Um, and that's really what an education is going to be. It's going to be this back and forth between student and teacher, uh, and there needs to be a certain freedom that attaches to this vocation. So this isn't about uh, a million free speech uh, per se. That, that, that John Stuart Mill publishes his book on liberty in 1859. This understanding of the scholar's vocation is much, much older than that. And it goes back to a different understanding, really, of what the, of what the person is, of what truth is, and how it is to be found. So Kirk says, this is really what the university is doing. Is it's, it's basically a medieval guild that's protecting uh, those in the profession of uh, pursuing the truth. And uh, that means uh, giving them a certain uh, freedom to be able to pursue that truth, to be able to uh, sometimes uh, uh, question uh, certain uh, things. So our society is devoted to capitalism, and that's contrary to the Soviet Union, which is pro-communism. But maybe you have to have a place for people to be able to speak outside of that Overton window. And so he says, this is, is what the university is supposed to be. And there might be other, plenty of other uh, vocations where that wouldn't be allowed, but the university is actually where it's supposed to be allowed. Uh, and that doesn't mean there aren't people who abuse that freedom. Uh, there certainly are. Uh, but you don't want to, uh, you don't want to uh, violate the, the fundamental tenets or the uh, uh, or ruin the capacity of the university to be able to be a shelter for those guardians of the word, because of course there are sophists running around. And who can deny that plenty of university faculties have their share of sophists? Uh, but he says, we, we provide this freedom because we want to have a shelter for those true philosophers, those ones who are like Plato, really looking for the truth, or like the medieval scholars who are really looking for the truth. We need a place for them. And that means we need a place for them to uh, have freedom without worrying about their next paycheck. 
Uh, and yes, that does mean we provide some protection for uh, bad professors, and some of them uh, were at Yale at the time. And uh, and that's but that's a fair trade given what the university accomplishes. You draw an interesting parallel um, in your article about this uh, between kind of the the uh, what we'll call the Deweyite uh, vision of education, which is a very utilitarian vision and one that that Dr. Kirk used as as kind of a a foil in his writings throughout his career. Um, but you draw kind of a parallel between the Deweyite vision and and Buckley's vision, not in their end goal necessarily, but in in the the kind of approach that they're taking, that they're both taking kind of this utilitarian view of education, of higher education. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Dewey thought that the, the point of education basically was to produce uh, good democratic citizens. So you're going to basically catechize and train good citizens of a democracy. Um, and and Buckley had a, uh, he was not a progressive as, as, uh, as Dewey was. So he had a different vision of what, uh, of what the citizen should be, but he still saw uh, the university as having this utilitarian mission. It, it was going to uh, um, catechize uh, good supporters of capitalism and good Christians. And, uh, uh, you know, Kirk said, that's, it's not, it's not just about a catechesis. Um, it's about an introduction to a tradition of thinking and inquiring about the world and searching for truth. Um, that's much, much deeper than, than uh, catechesis as important as catechesis might be in a certain context. Uh, that's just not what the university is for. So the question, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I, obviously I, I have Kirkian sympathies on on well pretty much anything, but uh, as we see, you know, this is some sixty seventy years later um, in the in the life of higher education, and it's a much different world, I think, than what uh, that what Buckley. I mean, Buckley was kind of dealing with what he viewed as sort of out of control. Uh, liberalism, socialism, and so forth on campuses. Well, that's, I mean, that it's almost quaint from today's <laughs> from today's uh, perspective. Is uh, you know, and, and Kirk is looking at the university in this kind of ideal way as a search for sort of truth and the meaning of life is sort of the purpose of man kind of idea. Um, I, I feel like that there's not that there that there aren't a lot of universities or a lot of professors these days who really are interested in the kind of search that Kirk thought was fundamental to the university. And I think, I think Dr. Kirk would agree with that. Um, is that vision that he's putting forth of the university something, I guess, that, that we've reached a tipping point where that's not even a tenable possibility anymore. You're, I know that you're in a university setting, so uh, I'll, I'll promise not to send this to any of your, uh, any of your administration, but uh, I'm just, I'm curious if you think that that's, if, if the kind of the vision that Kirk saw was at this point, perhaps unrealistic. Sure. So uh, yeah, that was a, uh, you know, the kind of a, a counterpoint that Buckley makes is uh, it, that's not, it's not really what the university is, and uh, you know, since then, uh, as plenty of people have pointed out, the university has become more and more utilitarian. Um, it's there to provide some credentialing for the upper class. It's there to provide some uh, some uh, skills training so we can enter uh, various professions. 
uh, but it's it's not really a place uh, of a search for truth, and that that's the criticism. Um, and there's, I, I mean, it's hard to uh, deny that there's uh, certainly a lot of truth to that. You look around and you see a lot of programs that will just look utilitarian. They're just about, uh, in fact, that's their selling point. Is you come here, we'll give you some skills, and you'll be able to go out and be a really good uh, technician in some various and uh, and one one discipline or one uh, area or another, and and make money. That's uh, that's more or less the selling point of a number of uh, of disciplines. But there is. Um, you take, uh, you know, my own institution. There's, there's a, an understanding there that the, you know, the College of Liberal Arts is going to be core to Duquesne's mission. And so, yes, you'll come there and you'll get your uh, nursing degree and you'll go off and you'll do uh, perfectly well for yourself in the world. But you are going to get a core liberal arts education. Uh, so you're going to have some core of what your learning will be um, will be shaped by uh, that tradition that's that's 800 or 900 years old at least um, in kind of con- continuity with uh, the medieval understanding of of this deeper and higher way of thinking um so it, it it's present there of course I'm pointing to my own institution which might not be representative uh, uh, but I think there are a number of institutions that still aspire for that in some way. Uh, now that's uh, you know sometimes that uh, that core liberal arts mission has been uh, hijacked. Uh, how much is it still true at, at institutions that even um, claim that it's true? So uh, when Kirk was talking about you know, the ability to be able to kind of uh, critique your society, he said you know it's healthy to ha- for society to have a way to be critiqued. Um, he didn't mean it. Uh, he's writing in the 1950s, so he couldn't have meant it. And the a more radical sense of the Frankfurt School or something like that, uh, but just as as uh, uh, you do, uh, if the Frankfurt School was uh, really wrong in terms of their uh, kind of cultural Marxism and revolutionary spirit, uh, there there was still it is their crack into uh, into uh, kind of their crack into the university or, or the proper university is that you do want a society wants a a place for the. Um, uh, for a healthy critique to be able to be launched. So uh, if you, if anyone's ever read um, C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, That Hideous Strength, uh, which is the third of his, uh, of his space trilogy, uh, excellent books. Um, and people may not know that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was one of the uh, actually pioneers of the uh, genre of uh, science fiction. So he kind of helped to make possible writing his books in the late 30s and 1940s for for the classic era of uh, sci-fi to come in the 60s and 70s. But at any rate, he has in this book uh, the kind of little band of, of the good guys. And there's one member of that band, McPherson, I think is his name. And he's uh, always questioning everything the leader does of their of the good guys, um, and uh, at, at one point there's a conversation between uh, one member and the leader. And it's like you know who is this guy? Um, he questions everything and kind of attacks everything that's said. And uh, the leader of the group says, "Well, he's the skeptic, uh, and that's a very important role." Uh, and so th- there is a need for to have uh, sk- skeptics who. Uh, Kind of believe in the overall project, um, but are able to have the freedom and the wherewithal to be able to critique it. So the university provides this academic freedom, but it does mean there's going to be people there who question, say, uh, the capitalist paradigm, or they question their um, certain aspects of the Western order that the rest of us have taken for granted, um, and that you want to have a position uh, for those people so that you get those healthy critiques. Now, of course, you get the tangentious critiques. The, sco- uh, the, uh, the sophists and um, 
you know, the Frankfurt School, you, you, you end up with people like that as well. Uh, but Kirk said, you've got to realize you need, um, you need this in your society. So um, in some ways, it, you know, the university may, it has in various ways, I think, uh, become too utilitarian on the one hand, and sometimes it has uh, permitted um, uh, poor scholars, I mean, there's uh, plenty of uh, literature on this point, uh, to kind of have a perch that, uh, that uh, Kirk might agree they don't deserve. Um, but Sometimes that's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to know ahead of time, um, and I'd like to be able to tell you that you know who those scholars are who really need to be uh, lose their tenure. But uh, truth be told, I might be wrong on that. Uh, I won't know for another twenty years. So uh, uh, Kirk w was basically uh, uh, offering caution: be careful before you say these you know these communist professors are training our students in communism. Communism is bad. Uh, we still believe that today. Uh, we were right on that. But he said, be careful before you start just firing them. Um, you don't know what damage you might be doing by getting rid of this of this institution of tenure, which um, is is old, but even in, in its uh, protections, um, it's actually much older than, say, the 19th century German university, uh, where it's kind of modern instantiation as it goes all the way back to the beginning in terms of, of what's necessary to search for truth. I mean, truth be told, politicians don't like to hear the truth. Uh, so the politicians who wanted to fire communists, they may have, they maybe they were right. Com the communists were wrong. Uh, but they also want to fire the, the philosophers as well. They don't just want to fire the sophists when they get annoying. They want to uh, fire the philosophers when they're right. So Kirk says you've got to be really careful that you don't um, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Uh, so he's he's offering this warning, and and uh, so it's one thing that uh, uh, you know we should really take into account. Um, Robert Nisbet published a book in 1971, The Degradation of the Academic Dogma. And he basically makes the argument that the university had kind of given up its birthright. So why does the university exist? It exists for the reason Kirk said, uh, to produce knowledge and to uh, pass that knowledge on to the next generation. It does this through uh, research and teaching. And it's been doing this for 800 years. Uh, but then uh, in the 20th century, it kind of gave up its birthright. It sold its birthright for lots of federal contracts, especially with the Department of Defense. And so he said it really, uh, it really isn't about producing knowledge. It's about producing particular answers uh, that the federal government wants. And so this has really distorted what the university is about. Um, and so uh, the university really needs some reform, but it needs a reform uh, going back. Uh, we might call it traditionalist reform to be what, it's, what it has been in the past. Uh, so uh, in some ways, the uh, Buckley, um, it was, was somewhat right, and the university continued down that path. But the reason it continued down the path that he criticized was in part because it adopted the view of the university that he was advocating, that it's just utilitarian. It's just about training technicians. Uh, and if it does so, well, it actually gave up its birthright, um, its ability to be a place where knowledge is sought for its own sake. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we see um, some, some different crises coming together uh, at once. One is is what you're talking about there that the that through these these research grants and and um, federally directed uh, research that universities have become an arm not only the federal government but also big corporations and and so forth. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of universities and colleges just completely doing away with you know, fundamental departments to 
what what one would envision to be the core of a university's purpose. I mean, can a university be a university and not have a philosophy department, for example? Um, it, it would seem to me that the answer to that would be no, that you can't really, in a traditional sense, you can't call you can't call a uh, an institution a university if it doesn't have a philosophy department. I mean, that's just to me fundamental to to what it's supposed to be. Also, though, we have a we have a situation where kind of uh, the the t- the the tenure crisis is is on the other foot in that uh, those who are most dedicated to being guardians of the word that Kirk would talk about. Uh, are the ones who actually are in danger of lo- of of losing tenure of that that you know that that they the tenure isn't what has has turned out not to be quite as secure as it was supposed to be for some of those people or not get tenure in the first place or not get hired in the first place so uh, there there it seems to me that there is a pretty strong argument that that the the modern university in the 21st century certainly is becoming more and more detached from the traditional vision that somebody like Kirk would would understand for for the university, and you know that that that, that creates all kinds of problems um, for for what you know for for modern education certainly, but also you know fundamentally societally for what we have going forward. Oh yeah, so. That's a point that's made a lot, and I think it's it's a it's kind of a sobering one, because uh, there, there's uh, there's it does seem that universities have kind of uh, uh, by be- they're going all the way and becoming uh, utilitarian, and I know the uh, the movement you're talking about, the schools you're talking about, where they don't have anything resembling the medieval university. They really are just training grounds for uh, technicians, and uh, you know some of those technical skills are, are, uh, important for our kind of, uh, at a base level in our society and that's fine, but it's also not what a university is. Um, so it's, it's not just a technical school where you acquire some skills to make yourself marketable on the job market. Uh, it can do that. Um, but it's supposed to be providing you with a deeper, uh, liberal education, uh, that makes you, uh, perhaps more marketable, uh, but for, uh, very different reasons. I think it was, uh, uh, a CEO of, uh, Exxon, uh, who would hire uh, classics, uh, people with classics degrees as uh, executives. And at one point he was asked why he did so. And his response was blunt. And he said, because they sell more oil. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the reason for that uh, might be that um, that classical education that they received and, and studying the classics, it gave them a perspective on the world that actually helped them be uh, what we would call as more productive, um, just a better member of their community, um, and kind of at every level, including their corporation that they worked for, uh, their workplace. Um, they were just better at their job because they had this higher view. Um, and one of the best, uh, the very best things that ever happened for my writing was uh, when I went to grad school and I took a Latin class. Uh, you don't really understand. Uh, rules of English grammar and to understand that Latin is at the base and suddenly it all comes together. Uh, so diagramming sentences in Latin was the best thing I could possibly do for writing in English. Uh, and so the sort of classical education that we would think of as, um, is extra, you know, what's the point of Latin? None of us speak Latin anymore. What's the point of learning it? Well, the point of learning it is it makes you way better at English for one thing. Uh, so, uh, that's, uh, we kind of have lost that. Uh, and so, uh, while we think we're doing the students a service by getting them their skills, that'll get them a good job. 
or denying them actually ironically better jobs um, and not just jobs, but better members of our society at large because they'll have this higher view. Um, if you, for example, uh, study useless history and you really understand what happened in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, what the transitions were through the tumultuous um, second and first century BC in Rome, uh, and you you study these things, you study, say, the 16th, the 15th, and 16th century in England, uh, you understand the tumultuous uh, period there, you understand the rise of uh, the colonies in, in America, what happened in the 1600s, why they were designed the way that they were, how those things played out. You have a much better perspective on uh, uh, the, uh, you know, what happens in Ukraine? Uh, what is going on today with our, you know, executive power and the conflicts between, uh, or the I shouldn't say conflicts between Congress and the president? I'd say should the complete uh, forfeiting of, of power that Congress has given to the president. So you start to understand the context uh, for this in a way that you can't if 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 you don't have that background. So sometimes we say, well, you know, it's irrelevant. What what possible relevancy does any of that have? Uh, historical knowledge, uh, dead languages. What what? What possible purpose is any of this? Uh, what's the point in having a philosophy degree? Uh, what's the point in having any of these useless, you know, I put that in scare quotes, uh, liberal arts degrees? Well, the reason is, is it gives you this background, this kind of higher perch upon which to look at contemporary issues. And it gives you a higher perch upon which to look at it yourself. Um, studying uh, great figures from the past, it helps you see um, uh, uh, the real, we're told of the dangers of pride all the time. Well, at least we used to be told that. Uh, but you'll really learn that if you study historical figures. You see where they make uh, enormous mistakes, and pride leads them. I mean, pride goes before a fall. Just study your history, and you'll see that certainly that is true, true of societies and true of individuals. Uh, and th that can help shape you in the way you see the world. And um, so we're really missing out. So I mean, in some ways, uh, the critique of the university is is correct. It's it's really given up that role. Of providing that liberal education and then sending out uh, engineers into the world and doctors into the world who had that higher view that they'd gotten as uh, as undergraduates uh, through a very good uh, liberal arts core, um, but we don't do that anymore. Uh, the universities we talked about have gone completely utilitarian, but they're actually in some ways really doing a disservice to those students. They're giving them degrees and they're telling them they're university educated, but they aren't. Uh, they're they're being trained to be kind of a, a low level. Uh, perhaps well-paid, but low-level technicians. And they're not going to be the, the type of people who, have, uh, who are far-seeing and can even uh, the type of people who might be able to guide, um, uh, as, as I mentioned with my Exxon Mobil example, who will be able to guide uh, large corporations towards, uh, towards a future. We're actually really doing them a disservice by not giving them that higher perspective. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Referencing back to your earlier mention of of that hideous strength, I mean, we're we're seeing the development of exactly what Lewis saw and was talking about, and uh, through through I guess kind of undercutting um, this ethical understanding that is that is inherent to a liberal arts education that you that you necessarily gain that you you learn what it is to be human right through a through a liberal arts education, and if you take that away then you open the door to all all kinds of uh, scary things that uh, that people with a utilitarian mindset can't be bothered to think might be wrong in 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 any kind of way and it it's you know it's ultimately going to lead to the kind of dystopias that that are so popular in fiction over the past you know 20 years or so uh, and I, I i 
I don't know if we're going to see a reversal of that. I mean, I, I do certainly think that, that we're seeing more people opt out of, um, of the current institutional education for homes through homeschooling and some private schools and so forth. But, but the, the major institutions certainly seem to be becoming more and more hardened to that utilitarian outlook as we're seeing, we're seeing different departments shut down and requirements pushed aside. And even when we do have those, um, the professors themselves don't really uh, don't really have any kind of confidence in what we might consider the traditional value of of a liberal arts education, particularly a Western uh, education that that somebody like Kirk and, and Buckley would have would have recognized as as essential. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, the, uh, the the traditional liberal arts I talked about are is, uh, are in hard times uh, at the moment, and it's uh, in some ways it's um, it could be uh, seen as the fault of uh, some of the professors themselves who uh, kind of abandoned uh, uh, talking in that way um, and, and and kind of teaching those things. And of course, I don't mean this in a uh, in a partisan way at all. Um, so it's not about. Um, this is kind of the, the mistake I think Buckley makes, as he said. Well, it's, you know, it's about a catechesis in Western values. And that's uh, that's uh, kind of too short-sighted. It's not just a catechesis in Western values. It's um, taking that higher perspective, and that's what Kirk had in mind. Uh, so right. studying uh, studying you know English history, for example. I teach uh, English history as part of my constitutional law classes, and I think it's important to understand where all these things came from. Uh, that we talk about in American constitutional law, you know, the due process clause. That's a that's a that that wording, due process of law. That's an old one, that goes way back uh, to uh, Magna Carta. So, uh, and it has a very important institutional history um, in terms of being a, a bulwark against uh, abuses of power by uh, the monarchs in Britain and and that sort of thing. So. Understanding that gives you a sense for why it um, why it has a place in our constitutional system and why we should take it very seriously, um, and we should take uh, you know challenges to it or uh, abuses of it or, or, or incidents where it seems to have been violated very seriously, uh, because it it has this important um, uh, uh, history, an important place, um, and really a, a kind of a, a humane society. So, uh, but getting that higher perch. Um, to be able to kind of survey the centuries and think about where you uh, where you fit in and how everything fits in, I think is is a is a kind of strong warning. It's it's uh, against uh, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, against fads, I guess, academic fads. So um, it's very easy to get caught up in whatever the <laughs> whatever the uh, the winds of the time are, where whatever way they're blowing. It's easy to go with them um, and to not realize you're doing that. You assume that because your peers are. Um, using certain lingo or saying certain things, um, that must be um, that must be the way that it is. And if you can just get that higher perch philosophically, historically, um, it can help you kind of see. Well, this is this is a trend, and it might have certain insights or something. I might subscribe to it um, at some point, but I can I can take a a decent view of and see. Well, no, this is just a trend. What we're seeing with uh, oh, certain political views right now on the left and the right. Um, if you have the higher perch, you can see them as well. These are just, um, frankly, they're kind of trends, and I can c- take the long view um, of of what where a humane society really comes from, and see whether or not this is overall going to actually better or worse for us. In the short term, it can sometimes seem uh, these kind of uh, 
Robert Nisbet calls the manias that uh, that kind of strike society from time to time. And I think we uh, you know he could could describe cancel culture as as a sort of mania. It's hard to even know. You know, I haven't quite. Don't think I quite understand kind of its origins. I mean, it's it's possible that uh, uh, it's just a, a sort of kind of a mania that kind of seized our society for a moment, and and we'll see if it passes. It seems like it might be, uh, and uh, getting to, just getting that higher view, we can see that. Wait a second, um, I don't need to get caught up in the uh, um, in the kind of. Uh, Whatever the uh, the shrieking is of the moment, I can take this long view and I can see how how does humane change and it, you know supposedly uh, the the upcoming generation really cares about uh, humane change. How does it really come about? Does it come about through these manias or does or do these tend to uh, cause more damage than than help over the long haul or even gosh over the short haul? Um, do they end up helping the causes they're supposed to help, or do they end up hurting them? Um, if you get the long view, you can start to understand what those trends are, and uh, I think that that's that's an important place. And it's it, to the extent that uh, we, meaning professors like me, have abandoned that. I mean, it's really a um, really an unfortunate dereliction of our duty. Um, that said, it seems like uh, you know if we're if we're going to have a restoration of the university's real purpose, um, it probably is not the answer is probably not to double down on utilitarianism and to uh and to double down on on uh, uh some of the uh ideological um uh, mistakes we've made and and this goes for the other side so there's a tendency of uh, uh, uh you know whenever you see a, an error to just make the kind of equal and opposite error uh so we see some ideological excesses on the left and so the right says aha we'll have our own ideological excesses and that'll <laughs> well that'll sure it. right <laughs> so uh yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think, and I, and I guess I, I would say, kind of talking about these these manias, um, that you know the the current technological uh, aspect of social media amplifies a lot of those things. Um, it may end up having the effect also of of having them pass more quickly. We'll see about that. Like you say, with with something like cancel culture, which is, um, it does seem maybe to be dying down a little bit that there's been some pushback, but, but it may be that, that the, the ability to spread so quickly and see, seem so overwhelming also may lead to, you know, a quicker burnout, uh, on some of those things that, you know, that may be a positive that comes out of that. I don't, I don't know. I do want to, uh, use your, your, uh, mention of, of Robert Nisbet, um, to change focus just a little bit to talk some about uh, what you've written about uh, association, because I know that that, uh, that has been uh, a topic, uh, particularly some of your recent writings. The idea of free association, Nisbet, of course, was very, uh, very uh, focused on the idea of community and uh, looking at the atomization that that he saw and of course is even more accelerated now in our society. Uh, and, and of course, you know, things like COVID lockdowns didn't help with that either. Um, but you've, you've written some about, uh, the idea of association, particularly is tied to the first amendment. What, what do you think are, are the current concerns about, about that idea of free association? I guess, what are the limits of it and, and how can we, make repairs to some of those things. Yeah. So, uh, 
I uh, published a book a couple years ago called Why Associations Matter, and it's a critique of the Supreme Court's treatment of freedom of association. And I use as a a kind of frame my discussion is uh, Robert Nitzbitt's uh, arguments about how the rise of the modern state um, has uh, um, exacerbated, or or even he says it is causing uh, atomization of the populace. So um, he sees individualism and statism not as opposites. It's not individual versus state, but as rising together. So that is the state kind of creates the individual um, by uh, by um, freeing the individual from uh, uh, allegiances and the authority of various social groups, the family, uh, uh, you could see medieval guilds, um, local towns, all these sorts of things. Um, so the individual kind of becomes this abstract, the idea is this abstract individual that we kind of talk about in modern society as the basis of society. But Nisbet sees that um, that individual only really comes into existence because the state takes the authority of a variety of social groups um, and takes over their functions. So for example, uh, the family used to be uh, much more important than it was today because it did lots of things. It was really important to you economically. It was really important to you educationally. That's where education took place, where it's where job chaining took place, all those things. Well, the state took over education. uh, So it took it away from the family. It took um, kind of through various uh, social um, social support systems. It took away the economic importance of the family. That's really not that important uh, who your cousins or brothers or parents are. Um, they just don't matter that much uh, because the state economically um, took over their kind of the safety social net. It took over education. It took over job training. It kind of took over all of those things. And then, uh, it, but it does that across the uh, kind of for all social groups. Now, the the result of that is not individuals who are now more free uh, from these all these social authorities and they can really thrive. What you instead see is these individuals are actually very, very psychologically fragile. Um, so uh, uh, what we see is a rise in uh, what sociologists call alienation. Uh, so people are alienated from society, which means they don't feel like they're a part of it. Uh, because frankly, they aren't. Uh, they don't have strong families. They don't have strong local communities. They don't have strong churches. Uh, they don't have strong uh, attachments to uh, their professions. Um, people kind of move around from job to job with no real mutual loyalty to um, to their profession or to their uh, business. And so uh, what that means is the, these individuals, though, aren't free and happy. Uh, what they are is actually uh, quite unhappy. Um, so Nisbet uh, cites to work by Emile Durkheim around the turn of the 20th century, uh, talking about how when you have a more liberated or alienated populace, um, rather than seeing individuals thrive, you see individual pathologies rise, uh, a rise in insanity, uh, a rise in suicides, and all sorts of other kind of social pathologies uh, rise out of this development. So Nisbet um, says, well, this is really due to the work of the modern state. And he publishes this book, Quest for Community in 1953, so kind of right in the heyday of the uh, of the conservative intellectual renaissance. Uh, and so I, I read that book, and um, it, he makes a, you know Nesbitt makes a very good case. Um, and I thought about the dichotomy that he draws. So he says, state and individual. This is what the modern state kind of demarcates. It says there are individuals with rights, and there's the state with power, and nothing else exists. Um, so there, all of the, what we talk about in terms of the family, church, all of this, this is entirely ephemeral. It doesn't really exist in any meaningful sense. And I realized that the Supreme Court um, had basically treated freedom for associations in exactly that manner. Um, so the Supreme Court, that the 
association, freedom of association, doesn't appear in the First Amendment um, in a great book published in 2012 called Liberty's Refuge by John Inazio, uh makes the case that actually it does in terms of the Assembly Clause. The Assembly Clause is actually, the Supreme Court has ignored the Assembly Clause uh, basically since, uh, gosh, I think the last time it mentioned it was the early 1980s. Uh, but actually, that clause should have been much more robust. It should have been basically freedom of, for a variety of associations um, uh, to be able to operate in our society. Um, the Supreme Court uh, kind of let that clause drop. Um, and so I, I picked up in my book, I said, hey, look, we have a textual location of the right. That means it needs to be really robust. And the court needs to start referring to that as a freedom of association separate from freedom of speech. So what the Supreme Court does, and fair, uh, Nisbet could have predicted this, um, is the Supreme Court says, yeah, there's these freedom for these associations out there. But all that is, is a reflection of the individual right to free speech. So you have the right to free speech in the First Amendment. And now one way you as an individual might express your viewpoint is you join a group. And that, and through that group, you express your viewpoint. And so it's called freedom of expressive association. That's the term the court gave to it. And this is how the court treats freedom of association. But of course, there's all sorts of reasons you might associate that aren't uh, about expression per se. And uh, so the reason the court uh, gives for uh, uh, saying this, it says you have the individual right to participate in democratic government. So that is you, an individual, have an individual right, and you can participate in the state. We have a democratic state. Well, you know that sounds a lot to me like uh, Nisbet's state-individual dichotomy, uh, but it's ignoring that uh, we join all sorts of groups for other reasons, um, fraternity. Um, so we enjoy uh, the. Uh, by the way, the the lower court, federal courts have said that fraternities don't have freedom of association rights. The reason for that is that they're not expressive, right? They're fraternal reasons. Therefore, it's not protected by the First Amendment's free speech clause. And so I, I, I make the argument that actually they should be protected under the assembly clause. Um, so you have a right to association for all sorts of reasons under that assembly clause. Um, as, as long as in the, 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 um, in the text, you ha get one uh, limitation that's peaceable. Um, you have to be peaceable, of course. So, you know, no right to revolution is in the assembly clause. Uh, but uh, you would have a right to fraternity. So those fraternities uh, and sororities, they should have rights recognized there at public universities. Um, and there's all sorts of other ways in which um, the, the courts are allowed uh, various government um, uh, entities to kind of hem in uh, the right of even religious groups uh, to uh, freedom of association around religious values. So you would think that would be you know quintessential free exercise issue. Uh, so in 2010, the Supreme Court, in a case, uh, case that I talk uh, a lot about in my book, um, Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, the court said, this religious group at a public university doesn't have a right to require its members to be religious. Um, so the court says, uh, has always has said for decades that um, at public universities, student groups do have First Amendment rights. So that student group forum is a First Amendment forum. Uh, so when public universities create this forum, they have to rec recognize uh, free, uh, First Amendment rights there. But then in 2010, it says, yeah, First Amendment rights are relevant here, but not associational rights. So religious group can't tell its members to be religious. In this case, it's an evangelical student group. It can't say you have to hold by evangelical theological views to be a leader in our group. They weren't allowed to do that. Uh, and I say, well, that's, you know, th this is kind of the uh, reductio ad absurdum of the of the individual state dichotomy. It's it's looking at this group, a religious group, and saying it really has no real existence. It can't even tell its own members to be religious. Uh, so this is an incredibly uh, dereliction of the uh, of the freedoms 
that should be, I think, guaranteed under a under a, a real freedom of association, uh, which which we have a textual location for in the, in the assembly clause. And so we need to uh, really think hard about um, what that freedom means. Um, and so I give the uh, drawing from Robert Nisbet. I say the real question we want to ask is is functional autonomy. Is this group can it be autonomous as to its function? That's Nisbet's term that he gives us in uh, 1975 in the Twilight of Authority. Um, so uh, that's what we should be looking at. Um, so can a fraternity gather people together for fraternal reasons? That's the question lower court should be asking. Not is this group expressive? That's only one function. There should be other functions. Now, are there going to be limits to the functions? Uh, well, you know, peaceable, yes. And might there be additional? limitations on on the uh, right of groups to exclude. And we might think about a uh, proper context. And, and the court does this all the time with rights. It kind of lays out, um, kind of elaborates on what it means. So uh, our speech clause, for example, the court has spent a long lot time uh, uh, kind of saying, well, there are certain exceptions to it. Obscenity is an exception. Um, libel is an exception. So you can't libel people, um, even though it doesn't say that in the First Amendment. Surely it means uh, freedom of speech and freedom of press. It doesn't include libeling. Uh, so there's some uh, limitations that kind of uh, emerge from the logic of the right. So might there be limitations from the logic of freedom of association? Yes. Um, and, and how do we discover those? We discover them over time by studying the issue um, and uh, elaborating and having various cases come up and kind of understanding where the lines are. The problem is, is the court didn't do any of that. It just jettisoned uh, any any right of association under the assembly clause and just treated it as freedom of speech. So it has almost no case law that, that that's helpful along these lines. Um, so my argument is uh, we need to start thinking very hard about what associations really are, because we we should have known already, frankly, from the beginning, that associations are incredibly important. Those uh, voluntary associations that we're a part of, as well as uh, more substantive associations like the family and the church are really important to us as individuals. Uh, and we can't treat individuals as this as abstract category, which is what the court treats it. It's what the modern state likes to treat individuals. Um, it's just fundamentally inadequate. That's basically Nisbet's project through 18 books. <laughs> That's the fundamental uh, takeaway is our contemporary understanding of the individual is just inadequate. Um, and we need a better one. Um, and so we need to start studying along those lines of what it means to really be a church, what it means to be a voluntary association, for example. Uh, so some conservatives are kind of down in voluntary associations that sees them as too ephemeral. Um, but Nisbet was actually, you know, kind of uh, reasonably optimistic that that the voluntary association, when it kind of comes into existence in the 19th century, it actually does a lot of work. So think of uh, the Rotary Club and all uh, the Boy Scouts, all those organizations founded uh, between, you know, say 1870 and 1910. Uh, that they're still with us today, kind of amazingly. Uh, a lot of those, Robert Putnam talks about their decline uh, quite a bit in Bowling Alone and elsewhere, uh, but they actually did a lot of work in, in in helping to create communities of people around various values and functions um, in the new industrialized economy that came into being in the 19th century. So they were actually very useful, uh, but we don't really understand them, uh, understand why we haven't uh, quite studied their um their purposes. Um, and I, I made an attempt uh, to do this uh, with, with an article uh, titled Antidote to Alienation, uh, the Voluntary Association and the Work of Robert Nisbet um, 
with at the uh, perspectives on political science and sort of thinking through what a voluntary association is and why it matters. And I pick that uh, thread up in my book and talk about the constitutional side of it and why it needs to be protected kind of for, for humane reasons. We need our associations, but also for constitutional reasons. We have a textual uh, clause right there in the First Amendment that would apply to associations that the court just uh, – had a blind spot to and jettisoned uh, decades ago and never really did anything with it. But uh, I think this, um, we have a lot of work to do to really understand um, society as distinct from politics. Robert Nisbet is a great place to start. Yeah, I, I think that that's, I think that that's right, that we've, we've kind of lost uh, the, the, the modern mind has lost um an understanding through the through the growth of the mass state, it's lost an understanding of of what Burke called the little platoons. You know, the, the mediating institutions that were really fundamental to society, and I think in the late eighteenth century would have been simply assumed as fundamental to society. But in but in in the the modern atomized state that Nisbet's talking about there we're so far removed from them that we don't that obviously even in the court they don't even think that way they're missing an entire uh fundamental understanding that the founders would have had about uh the way society is supposed to work because the kind of society we have it well society isn't supposed to work this way and it, in fact i would argue uh, and I think you pro- would probably agree it doesn't work very well this way uh, because we 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 need those associations uh, on an in an immediate personal way. It's not simply a matter of of participating in uh, in the mass state to decide public policy issues, but but it's it's actually living your life in a in a fulfilling uh, and, and productive way. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, all of the, uh, the deaths of despair that we see, um, you know, uh, you know, diagnoses of, of rising anxiety and depression, none of this is surprising from Nisbet's perspective. It's, it was all predictable. In fact, he does predict it in, in the 50s. He sees the trends and he predicts, uh, you know, that the family has become functionless, it's going to collapse, and that's going to be bad for individuals caught up in that. Uh, so uh, you can kind of see a, a sort of, you know, we see how uh, Charles Murray's uh, thesis um, in coming apart as um, those at the top are, have really strong, actually J.D. Vance makes that case as well, have really strong associations. Uh, they have family connections, they have strong families and strong marriages, low diverse rates, all of that, and and, and they thrive because of it. Um, and uh, a, a lot of part of our society doesn't have those, and we see them really struggling in various areas. Um, and, and we think kind of more state intervention is going to be the answer, but it's it's not. It's going to be a, a revival of associations. Now, what form does that take? Uh, Nisbet's actually, a, he's pretty um, vague. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's it's hard to know exactly what form they, they need to take, but it uh, what we do know is it has to take some form. Um, you know, the family has to uh, regain its place of prestige. Uh, and how does it do that? Um, it's not entirely clear uh, the way forward, but uh, 
It is obvious how necessary it is. And those who get to benefit from strong families, uh, you can see the benefits throughout their lives uh, in terms not just economically, but um, psychologically, um, in terms of their mental health and physical health, for that matter. Um, all of those um, things or markers are are really indicated by strong families. And yet uh, we put <laughs> very little effort into understanding exactly what it would take to build those. Yeah, I, th- I think... Um that any kind of of conservative um, public policy push going forward really needs to take that kind, not just the family, but but uh, associations in general, but the family in particular. Uh, it needs to take those uh, those things very seriously and think of ways creatively, to reverse the trends that we've seen in society and, and allow those, uh, allow those different institutions to reassert themselves. I mean, I think the family is a natural fundamental building block of society. It, I, I don't think it would be hard for it to reassert itself, but we have a, we have a, a system in place that kind of is designed almost to, to suppress it. And so we're, and obviously we're seeing the results of that and, and, uh, and suffering because of it. But even beyond the family, it's those other institutions, those other mediating institutions that, that need to be able to thrive and grow. And I think, of course, that you don't have to have a public policy uh, uh, action to help those things. I think you know, conservatives uh, and traditionalists need to think about ways to do that, that you know, we we don't need to rely on the government for those things, but uh, at the same time, we shouldn't have to fight it either. But uh, you know, that that's that's what we're dealing with, I guess, in 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 this kind of society. But uh, you know, but I think that that those are things that are going to take literally generations to rebuild, though. That's right. That's right. These these uh, this is the problem. It doesn't uh, you don't get multi generational healthy families and. A short amount of time, so right. there's Absolutely. a lot, a lot to do. And in terms of public policy, uh, this is where uh, you know a number of conservatives are you know looking to say Victor Orban um, uh, for public policy uh, uh, kind of prescriptions for the family. Uh, and it, I think uh, it, it, as much as they're kind of saying you know we need to do the hard work to build the family, I don't think they quite realize the problem that's in front of us. Uh, so we need to rebuild the family as being a you know a functionally significant. Um, and, you know, a couple of subsidies just don't get it there. Uh, what that means is it depends upon those subsidies. Um, and that's precisely what we don't want. Uh, right. So how do we get uh, the family to be, um, kind of, you know, economically uh, and, and kind of socially important again? Uh, how do we do that? And also, how do we make it imaginatively desirable? Uh, so, you know, one thing for me is, you know, I have a uh, very fond uh, relationships with my grandparents, um, so and uh, aunts and uncles and cousins and things like that. So having a family for me was uh, was imaginatively uh, very compelling because I thought of myself as kind of taking the place of my grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents and great 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 grandparents. Right, I have those uh, photos of these people in my office. Uh, so I'm kind of entering into a long tradition of uh, of uh, raising children uh, as Sheans, uh, and so. Uh, how do we make that uh, imaginatively compelling? Because everything around us is is going, moving precisely in the opposite direction. You know, what's ima- what do we see as imaginatively compelling on our uh, uh, TV shows? You know, it's 
you know, it's uh, Friends and uh, Sex in the City. <laughs> That's what uh, uh, is imaginatively compelling or portrayed that way. Um, so how do we make uh, uh, these really healthy social arrangements in the family imaginatively compelling where it's something you'd want to do? So it's not, and how do we make it so it actually, uh, again, um, is a is something that um, is in fact a good thing to do, a wise decision from an economic and social standpoint. So these are kind of really challenging um, kind of big questions to be able to answer. And um, I, you don't have very many people really tackling them, I think, at the at the basis of which we need to, really going all the way to the heart of the matter, uh, philosophically, uh, economically, to really understand what it means to rebuild the household. Well, we have a big project ahead of us, and I appreciate you being on and talking about these things. We probably won't solve them all today. I'm <laughs> probably afraid. not. <laughs> but I, I do think that this that this does highlight some some real issues we have to deal with and and some areas where even with uh, you're talking about the you know the the court's reference uh, or lack of reference to these things when when we have what is largely viewed as a conservative court right that that we still have this this blind spot um, in these areas and so it's it's a challenge, but but we first of all have to start talking about these things to 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 get people to to acknowledge and see uh, the importance of them. So perhaps our conversation will be part of that mix, and well, I hope so. And, and we will uh, will will spark a, a revolution or revitalization right here on cultural debris. Luke Sheehan, I appreciate you being on, and congratulations again uh, for your appointment as editor of the University Bookman. I look forward to, uh, to seeing great things ahead. Thank you.